Hi, I'm Adam Blicker. You're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Adam Bligger, a renowned speaker on the tennis conference circuit who has gained experience with working with coaches, academies around the world. He hosts a successful podcast and he speaks to great tennis coaches and experts, as well as working with top athletes in his native Denmark. He talks to us today about ways to communicate better as a tennis coach. It's really useful for tennis parents also. I really enjoyed the chat and I know you will too. He also actually talks about dealing with getting diagnosed with a form of cancer three years ago and how he dealt with that and what's changed for him since. For this episode, we actually went live with video. The first time I've ever done anything like this. Uh, we host it on Facebook. In the future, we'll try host it directly on Instagram and on YouTube. So keep an eye on that. Hopefully with guest approval, all future episodes will be live. Finally, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. You can head over to slingerbag.com to get all the bag features, pricing and latest country availability. They recently added former world number two, Tommy Haas as a chief ambassador. Tommy's been recently training with the Slinger Bag and now use it as part of his training routine. Okay, let's talk to Adam. Thanks Adam for taking part in this. It's also a pleasure to have him on. Adam is there's conferences on all over the world, great conferences, and I always see Adam's name in there. So he's an expert in coaching. He's worked for the Danish Federation coaching top juniors, and I'm not sure exactly what else he's done, but he's going to tell us all about it. He's going to tell us ways to become a better, communicate better as a tennis coach. He has a book coming out in the future. You can, I think you can pre-order it on Amazon, can you, Adam? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, it's on your website, I think. There's a link on your website. Mm. But I'm excited with that. So that's uh, that's unbelievable. So you're going to tell us ways to become a better tennis coach, maybe tell us some of your experiences. But I want to start on two things before that. One is just your experience, what you've done in, in the Danish, Danish Federation, how you've become to, like you're a young guy, but how you've moved up in the tennis world and become this expert that you are. And two, maybe tell us you had a, a big challenge a few years ago. You unfortunately picked up a form of leukemia. Correct, is it? Yeah, yeah, lymphoma cancer. So a blood cancer. Maybe just tell us how hard that is, because one of my best friends had something quite similar to you. And I know how much of a challenge it was for him for about a year, year and a half between, you know, trying to stay away from everybody. You didn't want to pick up any infections or anything, how serious it is. So maybe briefly tell us about that and then we'll jump straight into ways that some coaches become a lot better. So the floor is open to you. Thanks, uh, Fabio. And, and just let, let me start out by saying uh, we're now doing this live. We're doing it on, on multiple medias. And, and that's that's amazing. I, I like your creativity and also just want to congratulate you on the whole functional tennis universe that, that you have built, whether it's the, the podcast, the Instagram, the practice journal or, or the match journal. I think that's that's an amazing contribution to to tennis. So so thank you very much for for doing all of that hard work. Uh, all of us only have so much time. I know you have a, have a family as well. So uh, so that's that's amazing that you are taking your time to uh, to do that. So so thank you very much for that um, from the very get go. Yeah, no, the family thing's been actually easy until, as I was telling you, we just had our second baby arrived a few days ago, 
and one was easy, two has actually become really hard now. So it's going to take me a few weeks to adjust. If anybody sent us an email, they would have seen my autoresponder. I'm a bit of out of action at the moment, but I'm trying to get it all in. And this will be my first main port of call since the baby was born. So yeah, tell us a bit about how you got started in Danes Federation and what you do there and what you've done there and what you do now. Basically, I think I've been very, very lucky to be from a relatively small tennis country like Denmark. I uh, I played myself. I still play. Uh, I think tennis is, is amazing. And I, I probably, I can't see myself not being involved with tennis in, in some way, shape or form the, the rest of my life. And, and I was, I was really lucky myself after being, being a, a player that, that I got to, to hang around a little bit and help out at the Federation at first, um, hitting a little bit, then giving a few advice, then starting to have some training camps, starting to travel a little bit with players as well. And slowly from there, it just, it just evolved. Um, and, and I liked it a lot. I was, I was very, very fortunate with, with all of the opportunities that I, I got from the Federation. I started going on, on internships because I felt like, okay, I've, I've seen some, some really good coaches back in Denmark, but I also wanted to know what are they doing in France? What are they doing in Spain? What are they doing in America and so on? And, and the first, first tennis academy where I interned, where I basically just contacted the place and said, I just want to, to learn. And that was at Sato Tennis Academy in, in Spain with a, a great director there called Dan Kiernan, also in the, the podcast game uh, well. now and, and doing amazing job on, on the podcast side. He showed me also, he gave me a great opportunity of being out there at the academy. I eventually ended up working out there full time quite a few years afterwards, but, but he spiked my curiosity. I found him an amazing coach and, and he just inspired me to, to go on. And every summer from that point on, I went on, I went on internships at, at different academies when I was not either doing my, my studies at university or going on camps or trips for the Federation. That, that was basically what I just started to, to do. Go to different academies, go to different conferences. And you used the, the term expert on, on me. I think that's very generous. As you say, I'm a very young guy still. I, I still, to some extent, see myself as, as a novice in the way that I'm trying to learn from older and more experienced coaches than myself. That's always been, been what I've really wanted to. And, and that's still the case. That's been the basis of, of doing my own tennis podcast as well. That's the basis of trying to dig into also the subject that we've talked about, talking about today on communicating better as a tennis coach. Well, that's standing on, on the shoulders of, of some great experienced coaches that I've, I've got the opportunity of, of talking to. And to me, I'm, I'm still in an ever learning process of trying to get better. From an educational standpoint, I, I got a, a, a bachelor in sports science with a minor in psychology, did the same on my master's. Um, and, and throughout the last couple of years, I've, I've worked in multiple different sports with sports psychology. Where I feel the most competent is within tennis and then with a sports psych angle, because I, I feel like I know, know tennis fairly well. Uh, if I can then on top do some sports psychology, that is, that is what I find the, the most interesting. Nice. Yeah. Well, I, I think you have to combine these couple of things here to make yourself to be better because, you know, there's a lot of single skilled person, but if you can combine these things, you're a more valuable asset. 
And what, if past few days ago, who you've been working with? I know you weren't with tennis players, but you're working in another sport. Yeah, so uh, it, it's very, I, basically my work right now is in five different counties in Denmark. I am responsible for the sports site part. So that means in all of the counties, no matter what sport, then the athletes, the coaches and the parents. That's my responsibility to cater to them on the sports site part. But I also work with three different federations, with motorsport, with gymnastics and with uh, wheelchair rugby. And I just been on camp with wheelchair rugby, which is completely different to, to tennis. It's a team sport. Uh, it's, it's, it's completely different setting. But, but what I really like about the different sports is all of them are human beings. Uh, I think I, I've always been very, very interested in, in the human being behind the tennis player as well. Uh, I think the, the work that I've been doing when I've been traveling as well, it's, it's been, I've never been that much into to the forehand, the backhand, the biomechanics behind it. I know it because I need to, but but what I've always been super interested in is, okay, this individual, how, how do I adapt to this individual? How can I make this person thrive as, as a human being, develop, but also perform when when they feel like there's pressure going on in, in a match, in a practice situation? So that's always been, been what has been occupying my mind the most and also why I've done the studies at university that I have. I, I was never a good student. I was always on the move trying to, to learn in, in practice as well. I like to know the theories and I like to have the paper that I kind of know what I'm talking about. But but I'd also like my 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 practical experience to to talk for itself. Nice. And do you work? Is it mainly with juniors or with seniors or some of the sports? It's it's, uh, it's a combination. Okay. I'd say. At what age do the parents stop getting involved? Is there a normal age where you just they turn eighteen, the parents doesn't get involved, or is it a bit older? I think it's 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 very individual. Um, I would say in in individual sports, I find that the parents stay involved for for quite some time, maybe throughout the career. Just like, obviously, coming from Denmark, Caroline Wozniacki have have been been the big story for for a number of years, and and her dad stayed involved throughout her career. If I'm working with someone in team sports, I I sense that the parents are a little bit more detached. I also think it's also sometimes a matter of how much money are involved in the sport. So I think the boring answer is that it depends. Okay. You know, interesting. I hadn't thought of the whole team sport thing where, you know, the coach takes care of more of the players and there's a bigger support team there. But let's move on. Before we talk about the coaching, the better communication tips, let's just briefly talk about the challenge you had a few years ago. It was about three years ago. Yeah, um, I was diagnosed with lymphoma cancer in 2018, um, and, and had, had roughly a year, one and a half years, uh, a little bit back and forth with lymphoma cancer. You, you mentioned the word, word challenge. It would probably be wrong to, to say that it was not a challenge. Um, I think I had compared to a lot of, of other cancer, uh, diagnosed patients, what, what we would like to call them. I think I had, had a really good run with cancer in the way that, that I was able to, to work throughout the, the most of, of the time with cancer. Um, I, I got quite a few chemo treatments. I got 16, but I, I was besides from Wednesday when I got the treatments every two weeks and then to Sunday where that was, that was very much like being very, very hungover from a, from a fun night out. <laughs> uh, I wasn't feeling, feeling too well in, in those couple of days. 
But besides that, then I had seven, eight days in between the, the next chemo treatment where I was actually feeling okay and, and where I got to work. I also think that was one of the, the reasons why I, I was able to stay sane. I, for instance, the, the podcast that I was doing, I, I took a break from that because I, I didn't have the same energy level that yeah. I, that I usually have. But I got to, got to work. And I think that was one of the reasons why it was also an okay period of time. Because I think if, if I had laid down on the, the couch, I would have an easier time to, to feel sorry for myself, yeah. feel like, oh, this, this was not fair. And I'm, I'm, I'm this young. How, how can this be happening to me? So, so I think being proactive in the way of working and, and developing made it feel like it was okay. I also, uh, I, my interpretation of what happened was also for a period of time of 10 years, I, uh, I ran from, one thing to another in my life. I, I've always had big ambitions and I've always felt it was a little bit empty if you had big ambitions that, that you didn't put in the work. I think I, in some ways, I misunderstood it a little bit in the way that I thought I was superhuman. I read in a book that it was a good idea to, to go up early. So I, <laughs> I, I went up very early every day for, for, for 10 years and, and I didn't get to sleep at 10 o'clock. So, so a lot of the times I was, I was not well rested. Um, and, and I thought it was a little bit cool also to, to be looking tired and be feeling tired because I was just strong and I could, I could go through it. And, and I think nobody, it's, it's kind of ironic because the day today I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of sleep and, and also getting your rest in. I would say when I'm on, I'm really on and I'm trying to be effective. But what has changed a lot is I'm, I'm respecting my, my rest a lot more and, and trying to find a balance between s stress and also, so getting your, your recharging in. And I think nobody could have told me throughout those 10 years that I needed more rest because I, I thought that was, that was something you do if you're weak. I think whether it was cancer or it was a heart attack, a, a blood clot or whatever, I think I would have been hit by something because it was not sustainable over time what I was trying to do in my life. Um, so I also, I, I, I viewed it very much as a signal that, that I needed in my life in order to, to change. And I think I, I just, I needed something to, to tell me from the body that, that would just make me understand. Okay. Now you need to take a break. I'm, I'm still trying to balance how much to work and how much to rest. Um, that's an ever going thing because I still got ambitions. Sometimes I've also at the back end of, of cancer, I've been, been thinking, well, should I just, should I just stop being ambitious? Should I stop doing the podcast? Should I stop trying to chase writing a book or developing professionally? Because if I can't go all out, then, then I don't want to. But, but I think I'm still navigating that and trying to, to find a way in the ambitions and working, but also at the same time resting and having some kind of a social life and a, and a life with, with my family. So I think not to sound too cliche because I will never be like, I'm really happy that I got cancer, but, but I think it, it was a really, really good life lesson for me. And I, I think whether it, it hits, whether it was cancer, whatever, like something needed to happen because the way that I was living my life wasn't sustainable. Yeah, it sounds the exact same like a good friend of mine who had one of my best friends it just worked extremely hard, burnt the candle both ends between even drinking and just working really hard, just enjoying life to the full, but eventually caught up with him. And I was working with him at the time and you could see the energy levels going down, but you didn't think, I didn't, you know, it's the 
didn't look well, but we didn't think it, it was what it was. And yeah, it's just scary. And now they're, you know, they come back to normal, doing well. They're busy again. And I think it's a bit like you to say, you got to just take a step back because you can fall back into that old life. Like after a while, I know you appreciate life so much more now and you're so grateful for everything the exact same way he would be. But I can see people trying to, you know, slowly fall back into that life. So you got to pull yourself back every now and again and say, look, what the rest is important. And funny enough, on our last episode, which is airing tomorrow, even though it's our last episode, it was a sleep podcast. So we spoke with uh, Nick Littlehays, who's a sleep expert, and he talks about sleep. And I know it's, it's really important. But yeah, great to see you're doing well. And great to see the ambition is still there on many areas. So let's, uh, Adam, jump into the beef of this uh, podcast episode. You're going to tell us five or six things that coaches can do to become better communicators. And this can be valuable for parents too. And I think it's good for the juniors and players to know this as well. So they, you know, they can understand what's going on. So let's start off with number one. Yes. Yeah, so, so let, let me initially say that, that what, what I'm about to say is, is, is largely inspired by, by what I have learned from, from different coaches. So it's not originally from me, but, but one of the things that I have noticed over the years is that, that if we, if you go into hard skills versus soft skills, then in tennis coaches education, we have a lot of focus on, and also in my university education, there's a lot of focus on hard skills that could in tennis be the biomechanics, the technical part, how to do a training plan. But we don't really have a lot of focus on the softer skills that can often seem more intangible. It's how we communicate. It's how we relate our information. It's how to create trust in a relation. And it spiked my curiosity also at the university. If, if you look at, for instance, a, a psychology practitioner, what, what is the most important thing in the way that you are coaching? Well, if you look into studies about that, it's not really the approach. And I think, and I'm guilty of this myself as well as, as a tennis coach of, of trying to seek out the next new method. But in reality, if you, especially if, if you look into it in, in studies, a lot of times it's the relation. It's the amount of trust in the relation that is the deciding factor in how much are you able to, if, if you were my tennis coach, how much are you able to move me and to progress me as a tennis player? You can be the, the most knowledgeable guy in the world. But if, if you can't relate your information to, to me, if, if you do, if I do not have your trust, well, then, then you might not teach me that much. So in that way, it's, it's by my curiosity of trying to, to figure out and just get wiser myself on, well, well, how do you actually relate your information? the best and and how how do we go about our communication because it is a little bit intangible and and that's also why I've, I've throughout the last year or year and a half I've I've ducked down into communication as a tennis coach I've I've used the inspiration from the coaches that I've talked to so dragging on or not taking from their experience but also from from studies in communication trying to figure out how can we be a little bit more effective in the way that we go about our communication. 
And we talked initially before we went on here about some different subjects. And I think that the first big one is that there is this tendency of almost like an, an overcoaching disease. We are naturally as, as tennis coaches, we want to help. That is also how we get our fix. And today with visual aids and with all of the information available, then it's very, very easy to, to get into a situation where you are communicating a lot. And you can kind of imagine this scenario where it's, it's a sunny, sunny, lovely day. And the, the coach is with, is feeding from his basket. He's, he's yelling out on the first hit from the players, like, or a little bit more in front of you or accelerate more on contact, hold your finish, big, bigger last step, whatever it might be. So it's, it's kind of commentator feedback, just like if you were watching a match and the commentator was commentating everything that's going on and it's a hot day and the balls are flying, just feeding in balls all the time. Mom or dad is, is, is outside and, and they're enjoying a nice glass of red wine and, oh, they can just see that the coach is so good. Like he's so engaged and the, the child is sweating and like, oh, that, that's good practice. And, and to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe that's, that's really good practice. Well, could, could there be sometimes when that's good practice? Yes, maybe if there is a focus of some, some physical development or, or something along those lines. But just commentating on everything that's going on might not be the most effective in reality. And I think it's very tempting as a tennis coach because we want to help. We, we can see a lot of things, but, but just blindly commentating on, on everything might not be the best, especially also if we look at the characteristics of tennis. It's still a sport where you're out there by yourself. If you're not in a, in a team match format, either in a local league or you're playing Davis Cup or Fed Cup. Well, it's a problem solving sport where you, you need to think for yourself, but a little bit like if, if you keep feeding the birds, then they'll come back to, to eat some more bread. Well, th then they won't be able to problem solve by themselves. I think sometimes that the better option is, is to, to, to really to bite your tongue a little bit when you, when you want to say something and hold back. Obviously, there's also something about, okay, you also need to address when something is wrong. But if you do it at every single repetition, they, they, they will never be independent. And I think that that was one of the things that I did a really, really poor job of myself the first couple of years. I was complaining all the time about the players being, being dependent, not being good problem solvers. But if I then looked at how, what I was doing, well, I was always being a directive coach. I was always dictating exactly what they should do. I was never giving them options on or off the court. So in reality, it was probably more about the environment that I created around them that, that didn't even allow them to develop those abilities. And I think that trap of getting into the overcoaching disease is, is, is just a very, very easy one for tennis coaches to fall into. I think that, that would be a first step in, in going about communicating better as a tennis coach is every time you get tempted to say something, stop and reflect and think about, hmm, is this the time to intervene or not? And, 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 or, or is it, is it the time to, to just let them play a little bit? And I think that's also where it can be tough sometimes for, for tennis coaches in regards of the culture, because 
stepping back, not saying that much. It could look like a, a very laissez-faire tennis coach and a coach that's not engaged. And in a sport where coaches are, are paid fairly well compared to a lot of other sports, well, then mom, mom and dad on, on the outside could also be, hmm, is, is that a good tennis coach? Like, should, should we instead go to the coach that is with his basket and, and just saying something all the time and making the player sweat because that, that looks like good practice? Maybe, maybe it's not always the case. I think that that's one way of, of with our, our over communication, we can make the players feedback dependent. And that's not really what we're looking for. If we are talking about players that, that are going to play matches. And for me, that's not only performance players. I think it, it would be weird. Tennis is, is kind of a sport where sometimes I feel like it's, it's two different sports where that there's some tennis players that are competing, but there's also some tennis players that, that are just practicing which I guess would never happen in, in soccer or football. Like no matter the level, if they're three or four or five years old, they will always compete in the game of tennis or in the game of soccer. And and in tennis, that, that's not always the case, which I, I find a little bit funny. Like sometimes I think we will also get into just practicing isolated skills in tennis, which which is not really gamer-like. So it almost becomes it, it's, its own sport, which which is kind of funny to me. It's interesting. I'm trying to jump in here. I just, what I'm just going to take from that is, you know, we had a great coach over here who would ask you questions like, why did you do that? Why are you doing that? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I actually don't know. You know, you know, it, it takes a while and you feel a bit embarrassed, especially if you're in a group lesson and like, why did you do that? Or do you know what's going on there? And those questions, the more you get asked, the better, because you really have to think about your game and why you're doing it. And ideally it makes you better. So I think coaches who can, you know, compromise players a little bit by asking simple why and what questions can really help the player long term, even though I can, me as a player, as a kid, and even now I'd probably still struggle with it, would feel a bit like, oh no, why? Like it's, it's a good question, but I understand what you're saying. And just to follow up what you're saying, I, th- I also think it's, it's very important to keep in mind if you have been a very directive coach, and this is also culturally, I think this is different. I, I think that the approach, for instance, here in Denmark or whether we talk Great Britain, or I think that that's a different approach to most Eastern European countries. So, so you can't necessarily say that the, the approach that is working in in, in Great Britain or the approach that work in Denmark will work in, in Eastern Europe. But likewise, the approach in, in Eastern Europe might not work in, in Scandinavia, for instance. And I think if you've been a very directive coach, then you can't all of a sudden go from one extreme to the other and then just be asking questions and expecting them to answer. So I think the mistake some coaches also do if we're, we're talking about, okay, let's try to create the circumstances of the players thinking a little bit more. And then you try a couple of times with very open-ended questions and they can't answer. Then the coach can also go into, ah, see, th- this approach doesn't work. They don't know what to do. So I, I need to keep telling them. So there's also a gradual way of introducing them to for instance, options and making them more aware before we go all out into being being very open-ended in, in the questions that we use. And then, then you can talk about, okay, so so when when do we intervene? When when do we or how do we time our feedback? 
I think again from from a guy called Chris Suta, I think he put a very good picture or analogy on it. He talks about the coach as a, a bumper bowling. So as as long as as they are are going going in the right direction, well m- maybe they're fine. We could sometimes when they're going in the right direction, we we could reinforce what they're doing well, which is is absolutely creating a, a nicer atmosphere instead of always pointing out what what they're doing wrong. I think that's the natural tendency. Ah, oh, too, too close to the body. Ah, oh, you're hitting it late again. That, that's, that's the easiest to do as a tennis coach. But what we need to remember there is that, that what we are saying is becoming the player's inner dialogue. So we need to take care. It's, it's very good for us to be able to spot what, what is, what are they doing wrong? But it's not very effective to tell them what they're doing wrong. So we should always seek out to tell them and aim for a picture of what should they do instead. So if we're going back to about a player is it hitting the ball too close to the bo- to the body, well, m- maybe it's about telling them to get more space to the ball the next time. And I think in that way, being future-based in your questioning is very important. From from the coach Emma Doyle, she, she taught me the, the magic two words next time. I think th- those two words are, are, are very, very important in coaching. So let, let's not look back too much, but let, let's think about, okay, this just happened. Next time, what are we going to do? Then again, depending on the player's age and reflectiveness and so on, then we can either guide them or we can ask questions. And if they're then, if we go back to the bumper bowling analogy, if, if they are near the alley, well, that's the time to intervene. Will that be every two strokes, every 10th or 11th stroke? Will it be every half an hour? Well, that depends a lot on the player. It also depends on the personality. Some, some likes more feedback. Some, some, some don't. And if we can involve the player, that will create some ownership as well. So it's very important not to at least be only in the directive role because that's also a matter of, okay, so, so how long are we going to have the players in the game? If we're very directive, if they never get any ownership, if we're always directing what they should do, if we are over planning their tennis schedule so they never go down the local club and just play, for instance, the two of us just go down and play without having a coach on the court. Well, then, then we, we won't nurture the ownership and the love for the sport. And then the day that players figure out, I'm, I'm not going to be the next Roger Federer or Serena Williams. Then, then a lot of them likely will, will just drop the sport and be like, Oh, I'm, I'm just going to do something different. I think there's also a, a thing about nurturing the love for the sport, the ownership. I don't believe that that, that makes the case of, of not having structured practice X number of times during the week. But I think there is a case sometimes of us as tennis coaches, especially if I'm shooting on myself, that having a tendency to sometimes overplan their schedule. And then even, for instance, on a weekend where they're not playing a tennis tournament, then then the, the player is, is going down there and there could be three or four players in the club. But instead of playing with each other and having fun and practicing on what they should, playing some some matches or some sets against each other, then on three or four different courts, they all of the all of them are there with their own individual coach. And and I don't think that's that's always better. I think sometimes in the attempt of trying to professionalize what we're doing, we're actually limiting their skill set in tennis. And because we then get into, okay, 
if it's an individual coach on the court, we should work on very specific details and isolated skills instead of actually just playing some 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 actual sets and games, which I think is, is sometimes undervalued right now in tennis. And I think it's, it's some of the best practice that you can do. Okay, interesting. Yeah, no, a lot of valid points there, all new to me, like great getting your perspective on this. And let, let, let me just uh, j- jump on in the words. I, I said this uh, next time as some, some key words or two connecting words that, that Emma Doyle uh, has taught me. And then I think jumping into, okay, so what to say? I think it's very interesting looking at internal coaching cues versus external coaching cues. And there's nothing wrong in the internal coaching cues. That's what we normally do as tennis coaches, but we know from research that we can be more effective with external ones. Maybe explain internal and external cues. We did have yes. for our listeners, we had uh, Nick Winkleman, who's an yes. expert on this. We had him on the show at about 50 episodes ago, who was great. So if anybody wanted in detail, check that episode. But maybe Adam, you can just briefly, quickly describe the difference between internal and external cues. Of course. And and Nick is amazing. And I'm, I'm very inspired by by him as well. I think he's done some, some great research and he's a... He's very, very good at making it simple, what, what it means. And so, for instance, an internal focus or internal cue as a tennis coach could be, for instance, on, on the forehand volley. It could be like hand in front of the elbow. It could be when, when you are tossing the ball with your left hand as a righty. It could be stretching the, the ball tossing arm. It could be on the follow through on a backhand. It could, could be getting that elbow up higher. So it's basically trying to put the player's attention towards one specific body part. And the problem with that is it can create some paralysis by analysis because excessively focusing on one joint in a multi-joint movement, well, that's, that's very difficult. But it's how we're naturally taught as tennis coaches. We know all of the biomechanics. And then sometimes I think we confuse, or at least I myself confuse it as, okay, I've got all of this knowledge and I, I, I need to explain the player everything that I know. And sometimes it's also a part of my own ego. Like I want to show how much I know, but I think we need to, to understand and also realize if, if, if it was the case that the players who knows the most would be the best or the persons who knows the most then, well, you and I would be pretty good tennis players. Yeah, well, you'd be a lot better than me now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's not the case. So just like, for instance, right now, I'm, I'm having my iPhone here. W- without knowing the software and the hardware in my iPhone, I can navigate it. And and that's basically the same for tennis players. We, we don't need to know all of the, the nitty-gritty and the details in order to execute well. So one of the ways that we can transfer into the external cues and the external cues is something outside of yourself. It's not a specific joint. That could be, I, I just talked about the hand in front of the elbow. Well, for instance, a guy like Louis Kaya from the, from the LTA, which I think is an amazing coach. He has a whole language about the volleys. So for instance, he would say tap the ball or catch the ball. And that would be a way of using external cues and using what is referred to as action verbs. So that would be tap or catch. So that elicits a feeling. And what we know from the external coaching cues is that 
our motor system will naturally recruit the muscles and the muscle fibers to execute the movement if we go into these external cues better than internal ones. And it will affect retention for the players. It will not only affect acute learning, but also chronic learning. So over time, the players will remember better than if we're going to internal cues. And also across sports, we know that performance is better if we use these external cues. So internal cues, they're not necessarily bad. They can be okay, especially if you have someone for the first time or someone that you don't know that well. In the description of something, amazing to use some internal language. But when we get to the cue, the last bit of information, think of cues as a, as chunking together information. So what we know from research is our attentional focus. At least what we know right now is we can't multi we can't have multiple focuses. We can't multitask, not even for, for females or for girls. So if we can only focus on one thing at a time, then cues and chunking together information becomes really, really important. So other examples here could be, for instance, if we talked about the ball tossing arm, well, that could be reach towards the sky. That elicits a feeling of, okay, I need to reach towards the sky. Could also be, we talked about the backhand. Well, it could be with my elbow. I could try to point towards my opponent at the follow through, for instance. So that could be one way of going into an external cue. Then we also know, especially for kids, that metaphors or analogies work particularly well. We also know that even though you are professional or you're an adult, well, it, it works quite well as well. So could be that forehand volley where we started out with hand in front of the elbow. Well, it could also be like, well, it's, it, Fabio, imagine it's kind of like a tilted high five. Mm. Yeah. Especially if, if you're teaching kids, they've never volleyed before. Maybe you don't need to say anything more than just, oh, it's like a tilted high five. Can, can you give, give me a tilted high five? And, and they, they will know exactly what to do. Maybe that's everything that we need to, to tell them from the very get go. Could also be, we talked about the ball tossing arm, like, Try to imagine that you have a magnet in your fingertips and like it's getting drawn towards the sky. That could also be a way of saying it. Or it could also be, if we're talking about that follow through, it could be like, imagine that with the butt cap of the racket that you're filming the opponent. So that could be ways of, of creating an image or an analogy for the players and especially on retention and remembering the coaching cue we know that that sticks a lot better than the internal ones where you keep repeating the same more distance between your legs or whatever it could be. Hold your follow through. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. And, you know, you've had a lot of coaches on your podcast. You've had over 90, 96, 97 episodes. You've gone to all the conferences. You've heard them speak. You've worked with them. Is this, a, is external cues a common characteristics of a great coach? 
<laughs> I think. Oh, I need to be careful of what I'm saying here. <laughs> I think I think it's still an area where we can improve a lot. Do, do I believe that that you'll magically turn into a much better coach if you're really good with external language? No. But I do believe in general, if we're talking about communicating better as a tennis coach, I don't believe soft skills are the most important. Like if, if you're just a really good communicator as a tennis coach, but you don't know the, the basics of tennis on different performance parameters, that, that then you'll be an, a magical coach. I don't believe so. But I do believe if you know your basics very well, I believe that by being a better communicator, you can raise your overall level as a tennis coach. And that's why I believe it's very interesting to talk more about, okay, how can we actually communicate better as a tennis coach? Because I think that there is still some room for improvement in general in, in tennis coaches. And I think the old fashioned way of being very directive, I think that that's a little bit outdated in, in today's environment. I also think culturally we need to switch up a lot more and we need to, if we're working on something, well, we, we can't expect players to be locked in for 20 minutes straight during a drill. We need quick changes because it's a fast paced culture. It's an instant gratification culture where they are used to making changes and switches all the time. So I think we also need to emulate that as tennis coaches. Okay. Great. Okay. Nice. Moving along. Let's, let's keep these tips going. Cool. I think for now, I'll, I'll let it be with, with that regarding internal and, and external cues and, and dig into another area of, of where I've also been inspired to look into the, the, the communication of, of tennis coaches. If we go away from this would be very much on the practice court. Then if we go to, to the match court, I think it's very interesting also to talk about, okay, what do we do pre-match? What do we do during the match and what do we do after the match? Right after the match, but it could also be on that car ride back home or even the flight back home or whatever it is. And, and I think tennis is an interesting sport in the way that a lot of times, well, players will have a coach in the everyday practice. If we get to a professional level, the coach will probably always be there at tournaments. But if it's not a professional level, a lot of times it's the parent going with kids to tournaments. And then all of a sudden, that pre-match talk, the behavior during the match, and also the debrief afterwards, it's kind of messy. And I, I think that's where clearing roles and expectations on a team in terms of who's, who's doing the evaluation, who's doing the, the pre-match talk, it's super, super important. And I think just by clearing those roles and expectations, you come a long way. And I think sometimes, and I'm also guilty of that, it's something that that's, that's not clear beforehand and then it gets messy. So if we look into to the pre-match talk, I think, first of all, I think it's very important to have a match plan and to have something to evaluate on after the match. So So having a few mini goals, some focus points, it could be, for instance, okay, T today, depending on the, the player philosophy or player identity, then it, it might be a player with a big forehand. So a mini goal of the match could be covering two thirds of the court with the forehand. It could be staying close to the baseline in, in the, the service game of the players. Or it could be something like being inside of the baseline on, on second serve returns. Small, small goals that you can, or focus points that you can evaluate on after the match. 
Because if you haven't set up some mini goals that is in accordance with the long-term development plan, then after the match, the only thing you can really evaluate on is the match result. And if we only got the match result to, to, to evaluate on, well, then tennis is going to be a very bumpy ride because t- tennis players are a bunch of losers. Like if, if you're not the number one player in your country or in your age group or in the world, you're going to lose a lot. Like to, to me, just understanding some of the statistics, I think Craig O'Shaughnessy has done an amazing job of, of making statistics more available and we get, we're understanding a lot more about our sport. I also think it's exposing how sometimes our practice code is not really reflecting the match code, but knowing basic statistics like even in tennis, the, the world's biggest individual sport with 75 million plus players, if you make it, quote unquote, my definition of, of being a top 100 player, then if we look at top 50 and down, well, a lot of those players will, they will lose every single week that they play professionally. They will never win a tournament. And a lot of those players, if you look at their career statistics, they've lost more matches than they've won. Like they've made it to the professional level. They're making a living of playing tennis, but but they are faced with losing more than they're winning. And even in the matches that they're winning, they're, they're losing close to every second point. So you need to deal with a lot of macro losses in terms of matches. And you need to deal with a lot of micro losses in terms of points. And that way, I think tennis is a very challenging sport. And on top of that, so that's the point system. On top of that, you don't have a coach to talk to every two games or four games or every set. And I think that's naturally why there is a lot of frustration in tennis. Because if we have unrealistic expectations, that leads to a lot of emotional turmoil. And I think... Again, I'll just shoot on myself. I've not been good enough at, at explaining players what, what is the characteristics of our sport? How does our point system affect the way that we're naturally going to feel? I think a lot of players, but I also think a lot of parents feel like, okay, my son Johnny is now playing Ben and my son Johnny is, is ranked 25 and Ben is ranked 75. So he's going to destroy him. He, he's going to win eight out of 10 points. And if he doesn't, it's a complete disaster. And, and that, that will never be the case in, in, in a tennis match. So I think educating players on basic statistics is going to help them a lot mentally, but also before match, sitting down in conjunction with the overall developmental plan, figuring out, okay, besides the result, what is it after the match that we'll start up with? We'll always have the result and the result matters. Yes. But. It, it's it's really bad if that's the only thing that matters. So making sure that, because I, I don't think experience is not necessarily what leads us to develop. We need to have some evaluated experience. In order to do so, we need those pre-match goals. So that would be the first thing before we are going into the match to have some predefined mini goals or focal points. And then second, I would say, if the player, if you imagine as if you see as a coach or as a parent, if you see the player is, is fine, that's everything. Just, just go with the focal points. But if you see a player that is oh, really, really nervous, or a little bit shaky before the match, then the best way we can help them is, is to normalize whatever they're feeling or thinking. I think 
some of the older sports psychology from the 1970s in the States that was very much about trying to change the way that you're feeling. So trying to block out all of the negative thoughts or the unpleasant feelings going on. There's been a quite big change in the way both in the States, but also in, in Europe that, that you approach sports psychology, especially after Olympics 2012 in London, then, then kind of switched into more of a acceptance approach and thinking, well, okay, if we look into studies on how the brain is wired and how we have developed as homo sapiens as a species, well, then it's actually, it, it's very natural that we do get stressed out that we do get nervous. So well-meaning advice that I've given myself, and I'm, I'm cringing a little bit when I'm saying them out loud now, but well-meaning advice like, just go out there, play freely, don't be nervous, think positive, believe in yourself. Well, m maybe they're very well-meaning, but but they might not be very effective in terms of, well, if, if I tell you to not be nervous, and then you're out there and you're down 30, 40 in the first game and you miss your first serve, and then you actually get really nervous. Well, then, then you might be fighting an internal battle of, of just, is there something wrong with me? Like, wh why am I being nervous? When in reality, we know that, well, our brain is like a worrying machine. That was how we survived. Like many thousand years ago, there was nothing suggesting that we'd be the dominant species on earth because we're not very strong or fast or dangerous. But our mind is amazing and we can foresee dangers. We learn from our experiences and, and we have this worrying machine. So when something is important to us, whether that is a tennis match, an exam or something at work, well, then naturally our heart starts to pump more. We do get nervous. So in reality, it's probably more effective to say, Hey, listen, it's actually okay that you're getting nervous. That just means that you care. That's how we are naturally wired as human beings. And instead of trying to fight that internal battle between the positive and the negative or being nervous or trying to just believe in yourself, maybe in reality, it's more effective to go on and then try to switch your focus to, okay, what can help me in this situation? When I'm standing there, I just missed my first serve. What can I switch my focus to? to enhance my opportunity of making that second serve. That might be what we talked about with, with the, um, the ball tossing hand. It might be imagining that, that your fingers have magnets and they're getting drawn up into the air. It might be thinking about exploding into the air with your legs. So figuring out what, what is the lead domino here? Like what is the cue that is helping me the most? In a surf, for instance, naturally, there's so many things that's important. We could easily mention three, five, seven, ten things. And in practices, we are guilty of that normally as tennis coaches. But if we ask the players to focus on all of those things, in reality, they're not really focusing on anything. So we need to figure out, like, what's the most important thing? What is the thing that is making the other ones less relevant or completely irrelevant. Just like a domino play, if you press the front one, the other ones fall over. So it's really, really important. And that's also on the practice courts. That's where we need to help players as tennis coaches being aware of, so what is important on the second serve? What is important to execute that forehand approach? What's important to finish off the ball at the net? So I think a lot of players will also have this 
a little bit romantic feeling of, well, it, it's about getting into the zone. I don't want to think too much. And that's very natural because if we think of all of the, the, the best performances that we've had, players will describe a feeling of, oh, it was just, I, I was, I was flowing across the court. I, I didn't use any powers. I felt like I couldn't miss my forehand. I wasn't even thinking. And it's really nice to be in flow or be in the zone. But the problem is you might, you might get lucky and be in flow or in the zone three days out of the year, five days out of the year, something like that, maybe one day out of the year. And those days, performance takes care of itself. I think it's a little bit misunderstood to try to seek out the zone, like put your headphones on and, and try to, oh, I need to get into the zone before I can play well. And I think that's a little bit of a myth. I think in reality, if we're looking at it from a mental perspective, I think the better players are not the ones that are getting into the zone the most. I think it's more a matter of the better players are the ones that are, are very good at handling being outside of the zone. So the zone is more a byproduct of having done all of the right things. And then it's nice to get into it. Shouldn't try to seek out a certain emotional state before you allow yourself to play well. I think, unfortunately, there's not too many players that are outspoken about their internal state. I think some players are. I think, I think Bobrinka is quite good at being outspoken about him being really nervous sometimes. I think Nadal is as well about self-confidence. That would be another myth of just, just believe in yourself. Well, I, I could be, be hitting, be hitting the net with my backhand and going, Oh, just believe in yourself. Do it again. <laughs> I believe in yourself. That, that doesn't really change anything. Yeah. The, the, the most important part there is, okay, what do I need to refocus to in order to enhance my opportunity of, of actually getting that backhand in? And then after the match, after the good experience with getting my backhand over the net, then naturally that nice feeling of self confidence that will arise in the body. But I can't wait around on the self-confidence to arrive. It's not necessarily helping me to fight the battle of or just think positive. Well, I just double folded twice. Like, how am I, how am I going to think positive and what is that going to change? It's not that interesting. But what's interesting is, okay, what do I need to refocus my center of attention to in order to help me execute my game plan and execute my shots? So I think... We need to be cautious if a player is, is very emotional pre-match, try to normalize whatever they are feeling and make them understand that even though they're nervous, they, they can still go inside of the baseline and, and try to approach that second serve return. That doesn't mean that they will necessarily succeed, but they can't hold back and don't go, don't go into the court until they have that nice feeling of self-confidence. There's no reason to make any problems before they go into a match if there, there isn't anything going on. But if they don't feel comfortable before the match, try to normalize those feelings. Great. And what about then after the match then? So they, they lose, maybe you're a parent or you're even a coach and you're taking a long trip home or there's the long airplane trip home where you're stuck in airports or whatever else could be a long drive home or it could be a short drive home, but. How do you handle those situations? That's always in. Yeah. So, so I think right after the match, depending on whether you lived up to your expectations or not, could also say won or lost. I don't think 
either way, it's, it's not necessarily the best to talk about the match right after because a lot of time, then, then feelings will naturally cloud our judgment and the players won't really hear what, what we are, are telling them. So I think again, before match, it's really, really important to have cleared when are we going to talk? Who is going to, going to do the debrief? And that could be a deal of the player coming to you as a coach or parent. But I think if that is the deal, it's very important to also say that there is an end time because otherwise they might not come to you because it can, can feel a little bit uncomfortable to talk about the match afterwards, especially if, if it was a lost match or it didn't live up to your expectations. So, so the first thing would be don't necessarily do it right after. If you have multiple matches on a day, then you can be forced into doing it relatively soon after and your judgment might be clouded a little bit, both as a player, but also as a coach. And I think the next thing is that as a coach, I don't know if this is true for all, but but one thing that I'm experiencing myself and I've talked to quite a few coaches about is that when you're watching the match, it's very, very easy to write down the first 20 or 25 things that you feel like your player could improve, even if we're talking at a professional level. If if you present all of those 20 or 25 things for the player, well, you'll rob them completely of their self-confidence. So so that's really important not to have the have the debrief after match go too long. And also, even though, again, you'd like to show your value and how much you can see, well, p- pick up what, what is the most important thing or the two most important thing and the rest of them, amazing knowledge for yourself to the future developmental plan. But even before you touch some of the things that you've written down, I think the, the first thing to start with is going back to that initial goal setting and the focal points. So, okay, Fabio, on covering two thirds of the court, how, how well did, did you do on a scale from one to 10? Because I think oftentimes I could also have asked you, um, Fabio, how, how well did you do on covering two thirds of the court? And then you, you probably say, good. Bad shit. Something like that it would be very, like very short and it won't be very informative. And then I, I would accuse you of not being reflective. Oh, f- Fabio gives so poor choices. He's not really a reflective player. But in, in reality, it was my question that was super bad. And that way, I think the quality of our questions is oftentimes what is determining the quality of our answers. That's why in our, in our new, match sheet in the match journal and we haven't the practice journal since last year we have we have those questions well sorry it's up to you to put those questions in but now we can also they gauge their performance one to ten and they question themselves like why is it an eight why is it seven why is it six so over time then you can build a graph and see just throwing that in there so just we, we found out that yes the questions weren't right and they needed you know it helped them think about it that little bit more and get into what you're saying I think that's a very good point. I think even if we're talking about kids, it's it's a lot easier to to judge yourself on a scale from one to ten. I could, for instance, say to you, Fabio, well, one is is you really really bad, and, and ten was really really good on on covering two thirds of the court. Then, if if you provide the players, of, then let them rate themselves. For instance, on on this scale from one to ten, you might say, well, that was a six. Then I, as a coach or parent, I, I can challenge you 
or even the players can also over time, for instance, in, in a, in a journal like the one that you created, they can do it themselves. I think that's really powerful if they do that as well. If, if you happen to be there as a coach and as a parent and, and it's your job, then you could challenge them on, okay, so Fabio, why, why wasn't it a four? Then all of a sudden we get the player to reflect on, hmm, okay, so what were some of the, the good things that I did on, on covering the court with, with my forehand two thirds of the court? So you might say, well, it, it, it was, it wasn't the four because I felt like from, when when I got the break to four through two in the the first set, then the rest of the set I was really effective with using my my forehand uh, two thirds of the court, and and also in the second set when I got to five three, especially in the last game I did it pretty well. Okay, so Fabio, if it should be eight next time, what 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 is is then required? Hmm. Well, I actually you might answer. I actually I played better when I was using my forehand more, but I didn't really dare in the start of the match until I got that break. So so next time I'll, even though I know I'll miss some of the forehands, but I'll cover more of the court from the very start, even when I'm not feeling a lot of self-confidence. So then you also have a learning to the next match or linking it back to the practice court. And then you go through the one, two or three mini goals or focal points that you set before the match even before you start touching something that you've written down on that long sheet or that, that you go into evaluating the result itself. I think that also the unpleasant feeling or experience sometimes from players is also erased a little bit in the way that they know that, that it's not only the result that is cared about, it's also the performance, which I think is, is very, very important. And I think sometimes with our behavior, then we show players that we only care about the result. Whereas I, I actually don't feel like with either parents or, or with coaches that the result is the only thing that we care about. But let's take it the, the next step. If we talk about that, that car ride back home or, or the, the trip on the plane back home. Well, if, if we, we after a win, if there's loud music in the car and we go by, uh, the, the favorite uh, place to eat and so on. Well, then it, it would be weird not to be in a good mood when something has, has been going well. But if it's the opposite, when it's a lost match or when you're disappointed and, and it's complete silence in the car, or it might be kind of an interrogation on the way home in the car, then indirectly throughout the way that we are handling it as coaches or as parents, then we're also showing what we're really valuing. Maybe instead we should go past the favorite eating place when the player is really good on those mini goals or focal points, when their performance and what they put in was satisfying, no matter the result. Because I could be doing really, really good on my two focal points against you, but I still might lose the match. I could also be doing terribly bad, but win the match. And I think sometimes that that's really important to to take into consideration with how we are behaving afterwards. And I think being kind of even keel after a match, not being too excited as a coach or a parent or being too down is really important. Obviously, you can't be completely neutral and I don't advise that that would be very fake as well. But I think it's quite important to, to not get too excited and also the other way around. And what we know from a lot of tennis players is that that car ride back home from, from a tournament, especially if it's a parent 
in the car. Sometimes they experience that as an interrogation where the, the parent, or it could be the coach as well, is leading with the question of why. Why didn't you? Why couldn't you see? It was much better when you did X, Y, C. And while if you put a camera in the car, it might not always be what's going on. But the most important thing here is to notice as a tennis coach or as a parent that that is, that is what the kids are often experiencing. And while I do think in some cars it is actually what's going on, I also think in a lot of cars it's just what they're experiencing also because especially if we're talking about younger tennis players, they might not really have an answer. They, they, they don't really know what, what went on. They don't really know what went on when they played well, or they, they can't really defend why they didn't do a certain thing that their parent could see from the outside. So I don't believe it's like you can't talk about the performance, but if it's in the case where it's a parent at tournament and the coach is not there, I highly suggest to clear the roles beforehand and maybe even having the coach predefine those little goals whether the player is then talking directly to the coach about those goals or the parent knows those mini goals and uses a scale like one to 10 and ask questions of two down, two up, and what do you need to remember? Or it's through a, a brilliant medium like the, the journal that you have done yourself that maybe it's just the job of the player to, to write it down themselves. And then next Monday or whenever they're back with their coach, that's the time to evaluate the match. And I think a, a small tip in regards to that trip back home from a tournament is that, that when you ask some of those children that, that felt like, ah, oh, I, I, I got this nut in my, my stomach of, of going home with my dad or mom. If you ask them about, can you mention a time when it was actually a pleasant experience going back home from a tournament? Then a lot of them will answer, well, when my grandparents took me to a tournament. That was a completely different experience on the way back home. And I think that's just a good rule of thumb, like thinking about, hmm, what what would my parents emphasize if they were the ones driving back home with my own children in the car? As a guiding rule, again, it doesn't mean that you can't touch upon what just happened. And I think a lot of times as a coach or as a parent, you're also just trying to show your interest but sometimes we do it in a little bit of a clumsy way. Whereas if we are thinking about, hmm, what, what would my parent do? How would they behave? What would they talk about first? And also, would they talk about it for five minutes or would they talk about it for the entirety of the ride? I think that's a, that's a good little rule of thumb in order to, how, how, how do we do right after the match? How do we do on the car ride or the, the flight back home? Nice. We, we did have, uh, we did have Peter Smith. I'm not sure if you know Peter Smith, a legendary college coach and pro coach. He did his three, I think three boys play tennis and he did say whether they win or lose when they were juniors, they went to their favorite ice cream place and that was it. Like, so no matter how bad or how good the win, they all went there and that helped things like be so good. And in another story where we had Matt Little on the show, Andy Murray, strength and, uh, strength and conditioning coach, and Andy had that big win after his comeback. He was on court for like three hours and it was like 2 a.m. at night time. And I was like, what did you say to him? Nothing. He just went down there. He gave him a hug and he just gave him a hug for a minute. And he says he didn't have to say anything. Like sometimes you just, 
you know, there's certain, obviously there's certain times they maybe talked about it afterwards, but you got to pick your moments and yeah, sometimes the less you say, the better. But as you say, there is a time where then you can bring it up. It doesn't mean you can't talk about it. So yeah, that's great. Very good tips there, Adam. Uh, I, I think there's a lot picked up there. And I, again, it's probably not about coaches going back and doing all these at the one time, just like you don't expect a player to do all these suggestions that you have at the one time, but somebody taking a tip or two from this and trying to learn more, maybe check out your podcast more. Maybe there's more there. Maybe your book's coming out soon. They can learn a bit there. There's other resources online. Maybe like, who do you recommend are some great coaches to follow online who you've learned from? I'll say what I'm talking about here is, is based on all of the the Clever Podcast guests that I have had the privilege of, of talking to myself. And and I don't believe I have the the ultimate answer. I'm just trying to to collect the the clever advice and also look a little bit into research on how to some 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 small, hopefully a little bit practical advice on how to communicate better. I, I hope uh, that the book that I'm I'm releasing on on communicating better as a, as a coach can be a great resource. Uh, I would say that that you mentioned Nick Winkleman earlier. I think if we're zooming into the queuing part and and talking about learning as a tennis player and as a coach, I think he he's done a, a, a tremendous job of of making that very clear. So that's that's a guy that I'm really inspired by. I think, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name. I can't pronounce it, but there's a another strength and conditioning guy called Brett Bartholomew or something like that. I don't know him. Um, so he he's written a book called Conscious Coaching, and and if he if he hadn't written a book with uh, with with that title, I, I might have stolen it because I think <laughs> for me for for me that that's what it also it's all about right now in regards to how to communicate better as a tennis coach, I think all of us are already communicating. So it's yeah. not something that we need to add on top of, of what we're doing or something completely new that we need to learn. I think it's about being more conscious of the way that we go about our communication. It's about being conscious of how we adapt to the players, how we relate our information, how we build trust in a relation. And what I, I, I humbly hope to is with, with collecting the, the, the wise words from these podcast guests is to try to raise some awareness around communicating as a tennis coach, because I, I still feel like I think it, within the next five years, I think there'll be multiple resources. Um, but, but right now I don't see as many resources on this subject matter as I see on the other performance parameters, be it technical, tactical, mental, and physical. Yeah, no, great. Okay, that's great. And we're going to end this now, but just one, two questions for you. One is, when is the book coming out? <laughs> that's a good question. I've, I've just finished the third draft, but every time I'm finishing a draft and I'm sending it to people and they give me feedback, then they, I'm, I'm getting told, uh, this is not clear. You, you should be a little bit better here uh, or, or maybe cut this bit out or, or maybe add something here. So I think at one point I'll decide that, okay, now, now it's enough. I think I'm, I'm pretty close at being there. I, I finished the first draft last October. So it, it's been, been a work in, in progress for quite a while. It's going to be a, a, a quite short book. Um, and in, in a almost Twitter like format. So I hope it will be very easy digestible. And I think what I can promise is that it, it's going to come out this year, 
whether it is in in two months or it's in 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 half a year i'm i'm not too sure yet um but but hopefully in the not too uh, too distant future Great. And where can our listeners and viewers now find out more about you? I think on the, the, the favorite medium, I'm not always good on, on, on social, but I, I got profiles on, on Instagram, uh, on Facebook, on, I, I got a, got a homepage, uh, which is just my name, adamblidger.com. I'm a fellow podcaster. Uh, that would not be so much about me. Uh, it's, it's been fun to be in, in, in the other seat of, uh, of being interviewed, which I'm very honored about because I, I like to be in the other role, whether that's as a, as a podcaster or whether that is at tennis coaches conferences or interning at, at, at various different tennis academies. But I think those are, are some places to, uh, to go for more information. Great. Well, Adam, uh, thank you very much. Hope you didn't mind being live today for a change. Uh, it's totally new to us. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, yeah, we will be live from now. Well, for if the guests are happy to go live, we will go live. I think it's great to be able to share it live. And yeah, thanks a lot. I look forward to seeing some of your online conferences soon. I'm, I'm not sure what the next one is. Is the World Tennis... World Tennis Conference is that what it's called? World Coaching Conference? Yeah, I have a, I have a couple of closed ones for uh, for the Dutch and the Belgium Federation, so they will not be publicly available. So I think the next one is is the World Tennis Coaches Conference, which is hosted by TPTCA, uh, the Global Professional Tennis Coaches Association, in a col- collaboration with Sigel Institute. They're doing a, a marvelous job of, of collecting different speakers. Um, it, it's really a great lineup. I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm, I'm very intrigued to just uh, look at myself. Nice. Well, look, uh, have a great day. Thanks a lot for jumping on board. And yeah, let us know, people, if you enjoyed the live episode. Uh, we'll obviously try and do more, but thanks a lot and have a great day, Adam. Fabio, thank you so much for, for taking your time to speak to me. It was a pleasure. That was a very refreshing chat with Adam. I hope you picked up some great advice that you can try and improve your coaching with. I'll be back next week. And until then, hopefully you can get outside and play some tennis. Bye.